Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapters four, chapter 4, verses 5 through 30. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Ja- Joseph. Jacob, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews claimed that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with this woman. 
But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pat. I don't need that. You can take that. Thanks. That's my gift to you. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. And I uh, want to welcome you, especially if you're a guest or a visitor. Good to have you with us today. Um, during these six Sundays of Lent, we're looking at some of the most significant moments in Jesus' life and ministry, mostly found in the Gospel of John. Um, if you heard last week, Michelle Jones shared a wonderful message with us from John chapter 3, and uh, today we're in the next chapter over, in John chapter 4. Uh, it's a familiar story for many of us, one of the best-known scenes in the Gospel accounts, Jesus and the woman at the well. And uh, I've known this story my whole life, as long as I can remember. Um, but this last week, as I read and studied and wrestled with the text, I was uh, honestly overwhelmed at just how much good stuff there is uh, in this story. And so uh, we're going to dive in and uh, pay attention to um, listening for God's word to us this morning. Um, so John chapter 4, for context, we need to start just a couple verses before where our scripture reading began. Um, we know that Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at a well, but how did Jesus end up in Samaria in the first place? So John chapter 4 and verse 3, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Okay, so if you look at this map of Israel, um, you have the Mediterranean Sea on the left, then you have the Sea of Galilee up top, um, the Dead Sea down at the bottom, and the Jordan River flowing between the two seas. And so John tells us that Jesus is traveling from Judea in the southern part of Israel to Galilee up in the north. And the problem is that to get from Judea to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria, and the Jews at that time didn't go through Samaria. And there's a long, complicated history between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. But for now, all you need to know is that these two groups of people absolutely hated each other and wanted nothing to do with each other. And so, and in fact, in just a few chapters in John chapter 8, J Jesus really ticks off some of the Jewish leaders. And they respond by saying, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? It's like the worst insult they could think of was to call someone a Samaritan. So all that to say, Jews didn't like Samaritans, and if they needed to travel from Judea up to Galilee, then they would go around Samaria. They would cross over to the east bank of the Jordan River and travel up that way and then cross back over to the river into the Galilee. It wasn't a very efficient route. In fact, it probably took them twice as long as it would just to go through Samaria, but that's how much the Jews despised the Samaritans. Um, if you remember, this is even part of the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Samaritan. Jesus starts the story by saying there's a man traveling uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means that instead of taking this alternate route around Samaria, this Jewish guy was foolishly heading right towards Samaria. And so anyone who heard Jesus telling this story wouldn't have been surprised that the guy gets jumped and beat up because he should have known better than to go through Samaria. But look again at what verse 4 says. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Instead of going around it, he had to go through it. Which is such an interesting thing for Jesus to say, or for John to say. Why would Jesus have to go through Samaria? Jesus doesn't have to do anything. But he has to go through Samaria. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. The whole reason that Jesus came was to bring peace and reconciliation to a broken and divided world. And so if there's part of this town that is so torn apart by hatred that fellow human beings can't even pass through it, Jesus can't go around it. He has to go through it. So instead of taking the typical Jewish route, Jesus goes through Samaria. Okay, verse five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so obviously this plot of land and this well have some historical significance to John, which is why he hyperlinks this story to the stories of Jacob and Joseph. But for now, what I want you to see is Jesus walking through Samaria. It's hot, it's dusty, it's in the middle of the day. He gets tired. He needs to take a break. So he sits down next to this well. Jesus is sitting there. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask for a drink? And John, just in case we don't know, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And yet, in this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, we get to eavesdrop on the longest recorded conversation Jesus ever has with anyone in the Gospels. So I want to spend a few minutes looking at this fascinating interaction. So last week, if you remember, in John chapter 3, we looked at the story of another person who had a significant encounter with Jesus. If you remember, it was a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and has some questions for him. Uh, I rem I'll always remember that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because when I was a kid, I heard a pastor give a sermon on this, and he cleverly entitled it Nick at Night. And uh, now you'll never forget either. But uh, by the way, you want to feel old? When I was a kid, Nick at Night was like Leave It to Beaver and uh, I Love Lucy. You know what's on Nick at Night now? Friends. <laughs> That's how old we are. That's not even a joke. So think about that. <clears throat> Nick at Night, John 3. In, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman meets Jesus during the day, not in the night. 
Other differences were meant to kind of compare and contrast, I think, these two encounters. One was a man, the other a woman. One was Jewish, the other is a Samaritan. One is named, the other is unnamed. One is a well-known religious leader, and all we know about the other is that she's been married five times. One sought Jesus out, and the other is sought out by Jesus. Before we move on, I just want to pause and remind you again that the reason Jesus meets this woman in the first place is because he had to go through Samaria. It's just who he is. And so I just want to stop and go, if that's who Jesus is, then what might it mean for those of us who are followers of Jesus? And I think at least part of what that might mean is that followers of Jesus ought to be the first ones to cross dividing lines in our world. That's what he did, and I think that's what he calls us to as well. We all know that we're living in a cultural moment that's more divided and polarized than ever. And the lines that divide us, whether they're racial or socioeconomic or religious or ideological or political, are the sharpest and the strongest they've ever been in our lifetime. And it could be pretty heated out there, but here's the thing. Times of division and discord provide followers of Jesus with the perfect opportunity to follow him in being the first ones to cross the lines that divide us. I'm talking about the letting the Holy Spirit form the heart of Jesus in us. So whether we're at work or at school or in our neighborhood or at church, or at a barbecue, or a banquet, or wherever we are, when we see someone of a different age, of a different color, of a different culture, of a different status or style than us, just like Jesus, we have to go there. So two of our core practices as a church are community and hospitality. Community means that we're, sharing, we're committed to sharing life deeply as the family of God. Hospitality means we're committed to creating space to welcome the other to our table, to our home, and to our life. And both of these practices require us to invest in unlikely relationships with, to be honest, people we would never choose if it weren't for the spirit of Jesus living in us. So, Jesus has to go through Samaria not because he doesn't see race or doesn't recognize the differences between people. It's because he sees those differences and celebrates them as opportunity for reconciliation. So, in seeking out this Samaritan woman, Jesus is embodying his very gospel. And the result is that the woman's surprised. She goes, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? This was countercultural. Here's how Jesus responds. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So Jesus basically goes, you might be surprised that I asked you for a drink, but if you knew who I am, then you'd be asking me for a drink. And he's turning the conversation from his physical thirst to her spiritual thirst. And she hasn't quite caught on yet, and so she asks, how can you give me water? You don't even have a bucket. 
And Jesus answers, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she's still not quite getting it, and you can't blame her, right? She still thinks he's talking about physical water in this physical well. So Jesus shifts the gears and shifts gears and raises a topic to help her understand that the kind of water he's talking about isn't just about thirsty bodies, it's about thirsty souls. So he tells her in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say I have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Okay, so now Jesus has her attention. He shares this, what we might call word of knowledge with her. Something about her life that there's no way he could have known. And finally, she realizes that there's a much bigger conversation going on here. That she's talking to somebody who's operating at a whole nother level. And she doesn't know who, he's, who he is yet. She thinks he's a prophet. But she knows that there's something special about this tired, thirsty Jewish rabbi. I want to pause here for a moment. Um, because there's something I think we need to address when it comes to the way we interpret this interaction. Um, what do we know for sure about this woman at the well from the text? There's a few things we know for sure. John tells us that she's a Samaritan woman. We know that she's had five husbands. We know that she's with a man now who isn't her husband. We also know that she's well-educated in the Torah. She asks Jesus really good theological questions. And we know in verse 25 that she is waiting for the Messiah to come. I think that's about all we know for sure about this woman. But I'm guessing that, like me, if you've heard sermons on this story before, you've probably been told a few other things about this woman as well. You've probably been told that she likely lived a life of sexual immorality. You've probably heard that maybe she's even a prostitute or at least a serial adulteress. You've probably heard that she's married five men and divorced five men, moving from one man to the next, looking for love in all the wrong places. You've probably heard that the reason she's getting water from the well at noon is because that's the time of the day when nobody else would be there. And since she was such a despised social outcast for all of her sexual immorality and home wrecking, she was avoiding all the gossip and glares that she had to endure every time she went out. Have you heard something like that before about this woman? Yeah, we probably have, and here's the thing. John doesn't actually describe her that way. Jesus doesn't treat her that way. And when she goes back to town and tells everyone about meeting Jesus, her Samaritan neighbors don't react to her that way either. In fact, there's nothing in the text 
that makes a value statement about her five husbands. Neither Jesus nor the gospel writer tell us that she was an immoral woman. Now, we know she's been married five times, but we don't know why. We assume that she keeps getting divorced, but the text doesn't actually say that. The truth is, in that culture, women didn't have the legal authority to file for divorce. And so if she had been divorced one or more times, it wasn't her who ended the marriages. She was the one who kept getting dumped and abandoned. Maybe five different men divorced her, or maybe she was widowed and remarried multiple times. Whatever the reason is, she's ended up with five, now six different men. According to the text, there's actually no reason we should assume that the problems in this woman's past are her fault. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us she's a particularly sinful, immoral, or despised woman. And any of those ideas that we have about her, we're reading into the text based on our own assumptions. So, I wonder if we should stop and examine ourselves for a minute and ask why that is. Do you think that sometimes when we see someone whose life isn't going very well, we assume that it's their fault? Do you think that as Christians, we may be even more prone to this than others? I mean, we say that we believe in grace, not karma but I think we're pretty quick to assume people get what they deserve. And I wonder if this is particularly true for those of us who are people with privilege, racial, gender, socioeconomic. If we've worked hard and done our best and things have gone pretty well for us, we assume that the reason somebody else may not be doing so well in life is because they haven't worked hard or made good decisions. As the saying goes, some people are born on third base but think they hit a triple. <sighs> Pay attention to the assumptions you make about people who are suffering or struggling. That's the first thing I want us to examine our hearts for. Here's the second, which is like it. When it comes to the woman in this story, I wonder if the fact that she's a woman makes us even more prone to make value judgments about her. I don't think we would jump to the same conclusions if it was a man who had been with multiple women. In fact, that's most of the men in the Bible. But with the woman at the well and maybe other women in the Bible as well, without even thinking about it, we assume the worst about her. We objectify her. We sexualize her. We dehumanize her. And what's even worse is I think we even do it in the name of grace. Meaning most of the time when this passage is preached, the woman is portrayed as this sexual deviant, a loose, promiscuous woman. She's damaged goods. And therefore, she's the worst kind of sinner there is, the lowest of the low. And the moral of the story is that's how amazing the grace of God is. He loves us so much that he can even forgive someone like her. Do you see the problem with that? Do you think there's a chance that by making this story, 
about how extravagant the love of God is that he could even redeem a filthy, damaged woman like this, we may be projecting sexist and misogynistic assumptions onto the text. Might be worth considering. Now, obviously this woman's life hasn't gone the way she wanted it to. But the Bible doesn't tell us why or that it's her fault. Now here's the other thing, it doesn't tell us that she's an innocent victim either. We don't know, we don't know. Maybe she's even worse than we thought, right? Maybe she murdered her five husbands. <laughs> Maybe she's the Samaritan strangler. <laughs> we don't know. There's a couple more things we do know for sure about this woman. Here's the first one in verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the first of Jesus' famous I am statements in the Gospel of John. And when he says, I am here, I am he, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am not only the one you've been waiting for, but the one the whole world has been waiting for. This moment right here is the only time in John's entire gospel that Jesus specifically tells another person who he is. And who does he choose? Not Nicodemus, the respected religious leader, but the unmarried, unnamed Samaritan woman whose life hasn't gone the way she wanted. So, we know that for sure about this woman. And here's the next thing we know about her. She was the first person in history to preach the good news about Jesus. She goes back to her town and tells everyone that the Messiah has come. And what happens in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She preaches the gospel and people get saved. That's what we know for sure about this woman. So, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw summarizes it all nicely. This is the central truth of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the Messiah, and is the only time that Jesus reveals this truth to another person. That the person he trusts himself to as a Samaritan and a woman is deeply significant to anyone who seeks to understand the Gospel. The good news is that Jesus brings a new way of life a way that results in all people, women and men, Samaritans and Jews, outsiders and insiders, worshiping in spirit and in truth. This gospel becomes life-changing for the Samaritan woman's neighbors when she tells them about the Messiah and becomes the first and most effective evangelist of John's gospel. The last thing I want to do is pan out a little bit and rather than focusing on the details of the conversation, let's look at its general flow. So, Jesus asked the woman to get him a drink of water. The woman asked Jesus why he's talking to her, since she's a Samaritan. Jesus tells her that he's got the kind of water that will never leave you thirsty. And she says, that sounds pretty good, and asks him who he is. He tells her that he's the Messiah. So here's how my professor, Gary Bashirs summarizes it. Jesus says, serve me. The woman says, get lost. Jesus says, let me serve you. 
The woman says, okay. The woman asks, who are you? And Jesus reveals, I'm the Messiah and the Lord. So what we have here is a fundamental truth about the gospel and how life works in the kingdom of God. Christians often talk about serving God and what it means to serve him with our lives, and that's good and true, but it's not the foundation of our identity or relationship with Christ. The path to this woman's redemption wasn't her determination to serve Jesus, but rather her willingness to let Jesus serve her. So here's what we can learn from this feisty Samaritan woman. The way into the kingdom is to let Jesus serve you. If we think that the Christian life is primarily about us serving Jesus, we're missing it. Being a Christian is about first being served by Jesus, which sounds kind of weird to us. But Jesus tells us several times that he came to serve us, not to be served by us. Matthew 20, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples, I am among you as one who serves. I'm here as your servant. Or think about the Last Supper when Jesus wants to wash Peter's feet and Peter can't imagine letting the Messiah serve him in such a humiliating way. In John 13, Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Over and over again, Jesus proclaims that the way into his kingdom is to let him serve us. Which does make sense, even though it sounds weird, if you think about who he is and what he came to do. Patients don't serve their doctors. Swimmers don't serve their lifeguards. Babies don't serve their mothers. We don't serve Jesus. As if there's anything he needs from us. One scholar said, God has no needs that you and I can meet. God has no wounds that you can heal. God has no problem that you can solve. God doesn't need your information, strength, counsel, service, support, sustenance, food, water, money, or resources. We are the ones that desperately need him to serve us by meeting our needs, healing our souls. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And so our first job is to let Jesus serve us. Now, don't take this the wrong way. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Have you heard of cat and dog theology? I don't know who first came up with it. It's been around for a while, but it's the, ideas, the idea that cats and dogs each have their own theology. So we got any cat people in the room? Any more of a cat person? How about dog people? Okay, and the rest of you aren't really in it. Uh, <laughs> Real quickly, here's how it goes. A dog says to its owner, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. 
And a cat says to its owner, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be God. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <laughs> well, the Bible says that dogs are right. <laughs> God loves us, protects us, serves us. That doesn't mean we're God. It means he is. So this Samaritan woman lets Jesus serve her. How does Jesus serve her? He meets her in the mundane. He sees her and accepts her. He pours his life into her. He instructs her in his ways. That's the first movement to receive, to allow Jesus to serve us. But there's a second movement, and that's to go out towards others. Once we have been served by Jesus, we are then freed up to go and to serve others like Jesus. Remember, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, here's what he tells them. John 13, 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Notice he doesn't say, now that I've washed your feet, you should wash my feet. He doesn't say, now that I've served you, you serve me. He says, now that I've washed your feet, wash each other's. Now that I've served you, go and serve the world. So the call of the gospel is not to serve Jesus, but to be served by Jesus and to serve others in his name. So Antioch, this week, may you let Jesus love you. Let Jesus heal you. Let Jesus teach you. Let Jesus forgive you. Let Jesus accept you. Let Jesus guide you. And let Jesus carry you. If you want to serve God, let Jesus serve you. Father, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your Son and with your Spirit. And we come to your table this morning to be served by you. We come with empty hands, nothing to offer, everything to gain. Lord, open us up to receive life from you again. In Jesus' name.